Welcome to KUOW Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this extra episode, comic books are more popular now than they've ever been. Sales have been on the rise for years and keep climbing. They are also experiencing growth in diversity. One indication is the character Kamala Khan, the new Ms. Marvel. Khan is a Pakistani-American teenager, a shapeshifter, and a Muslim. One of her primary creators is the Seattle-based author Willow Wilson. Bringing a young woman, a person of color, and a practicing Muslim into the superhero fold has been both a huge success and a substantial challenge. Not all comic book fans applauded the move. Negative trolling has been common. In this conversation, Wilson discusses how she became the person who could reincarnate a modern Miss Marvel. She was raised an atheist and converted to Islam. She lived in Egypt in her 20s, where she worked as a journalist. Her experience highlights cultural progress and setbacks in the realms of diversity, religious tolerance, and gender equality. Willow Wilson spoke with KUOW's Jamala Henderson and took questions from the audience at the Langston Hughes Performing Arts Institute on October 23rd. Humanities Washington hosted the conversation. Jenny Cecil Moore recorded the discussion. Here, Humanities Washington's Zeki Barak Hamid introduces the conversation. All right, here we go. Welcome, everybody. Uh, before we start, the first thing I'd like to say is that uh, I'd like to start tonight by acknowledging that the land on which we gather is the traditional homeland of the Coast Salish peoples, and it is our honor to be here. My name is Zeki Barak Hamid. I work for Humanities Washington. For those of you who might not know who we are, we are a private nonprofit organization that is dedicated to sparking conversation and critical thinking using story as a catalyst. We envision a state where all people seek a deeper understanding of others, themselves, and the human experience in order to discern and promote the common good. I hope that you visit our website, which is humanities.org. I hope you check out our calendar, and you'll see that almost not a day goes by that we don't have a program happening somewhere in Washington State. Vast majority of these programs are free and open to the public. So thank you for giving us your money today. <laughs> uh, I want to thank the Langston Hughes Performing Arts Institute for their partnership. Uh, it is really my pleasure to be standing somewhere named for my absolute favorite poet. So this is a special one for me. I'd like to thank uh, Tasveer South Asian Film Festival in Seattle for their sponsorship. Uh, their film festival just ended this year. I hope you check them out next year. And uh, I would like to thank Geek Girl Khan. Uh, yeah, we got some fans here. Here we go. I really hope you check them out and support them every year. They are truly, absolutely wonderful. And lastly, I want to thank our media sponsor, my favorite radio station, KUOW. Just really quickly, this event today is part of a wider initiative uh, uh, about the divisions that we have in our country. A lot of political divisions, obviously, and a lot of them are on racial lines. 
We have had uh, events all f uh, during the fall about these divisions, so check them out. All right, so I'll stop babbling here. I'll just do my, uh, my introductions here. Uh, I'd like to introduce our moderator first. Uh, she has been with KUOW since 2004. She graduated from Evergreen State College in Washington, where she focused on film, video, and media studies. After several years working in video production, she began to pursue radio while working at the University of Washington's television station, UWTV. After a short stint as a volunteer radio host at KBCS Public Radio in Bellevue, she took a position of broadcaster at the Evergreen Radio Reading Service, a radio reading service for the blind. Ladies and gentlemen, my friend, Jamala Henderson over here. And of course, we have our main guest today, who's an author of exceptional talent and courage. Her writing tackles across multiple genres uh, the most pressing issue of our time, including religious intolerance and gender politics. An American convert to Islam. She lives today in both Egypt and the United States. Her articles, graphic novels, and books reflect her extraordinary cross-cultural experiences with remarkable originality and insight. She is the author of two books five graphic novels, and two comic book series, including the groundbreaking Ms. Marvel. Uh, in a field typically dominated by male novelists, she stands out no less than the strong female characters she creates. Her first novel, Elif the Unseen, was a contender for the Orange Prize and was awarded the World Fantasy Prize. Her comic book series, Ms. Marvel, called Pitch Perfect by the New York Times, won the Hugo Award for Best Graphic Story. Ladies and gentlemen, my pleasure to introduce G. Willow Wilson. Really appreciate it. Live long and prosper, everyone. I'm glad that you all were here to make it, um, were able to make it here tonight. And um, I'm just really excited to be able to sit down and talk with G. Willow Wilson. And um, just so you know, the G is silent. I learned this the other day. It's, it's a wonderful thing. So I'm just gonna call her Willow. <laughs> and um, I'm really excited about this. So. You had the right idea about the mics. <laughs> <laughs> And thank so thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate this. No, thank you for coming out and, and doing this. It's it's uh, it's a lot <laughs> less intimidating to be on a stage when you're up there with somebody whose voice you hear on the radio every day. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is a lot of fun. And um, just another shout out to Geek Girl Con. We uh, <laughs> Willow and I actually ran into each other at Geek Girl Con as we were sort of drooling over all of the wonderful things that they have in the in the concession area. Merchandise. Yes. <laughs> so it was fun to run into you there as well. Um, so I'm just going to start out with kind of talking a little bit about what people may have seen on the Humanities Washington website when they looked to see what this event was about. There's a blurb that kind of describes you in this way. And it, it says that you lie at the epicenter of multiple fault lines of Amer American identity. And I'm, I'm kind of wondering how you feel about that description of yourself right now as you're walking through the world today. Um, <laughs> so I, I, I first read that blurb because one of my dedicated trolls on Twitter posted it and said, this sounds like cancer. Um, and so I, wow. I looked at it and I was like, gosh, what is he talking about? Okay, I'm going to click this link. And so I clicked it and I read it and I was like, oh my God, it kind of does. Um, <laughs> but not in the way that he probably meant. Uh, it, um, it, it, it's interesting to me uh, 
to hear that particular turn of phrase used mm. simply because uh, from my own perspective, what, what I do and sort of who I am isn't really at the epicenter of much of anything. You know, I think of myself as being more on the periphery of several things than at the center of anything. Uh, simply because my own experiences don't really transfer in any great way. Uh, you know, there, I don't know that there are any particularly wide-ranging lessons that one can take from my experience and then apply to the American Muslim community as a whole, um, because most American Muslims are not white converts. Um, I don't think, also, on the other hand, you know, I sort of, by doing something that is, is sort of considered radical and bizarre, uh, you know, in, in converting to a religion that is, to put it mildly, very contentious in the US, I sort of diverged from the trajectory that most of my friends who are from similar backgrounds were on. Um, and, and so I'd sort of come to think of myself over the years as, as being on, yeah, uh, peripheral, on, on the periphery, which has, which has its own unique vantage point, but is not, yeah, not at the center of any, of any one particular thing in a way that could speak authoritatively for that thing. So when you say you're on the periphery, what are you feeling like you are on the periphery of? Uh, <laughs> I, I think, you know, pretty much every way, you know, every bit of my identity is, is modified in some way. Mm. You know, I'm, I'm a Muslim, I've, I've been a Muslim for my whole adult life, but, uh, you know, I did not grow up in the faith. And so that's very different from somebody who did, you know, whether they're practicing or not. Um, in, in most spaces like the ones in which I grew up, uh, I'm, I'm sort of considered a bit of a traitor um, because, you know, Islam is not seen as, as a neutral thing to adopt. It's, it's seen as, as inherently political or inherently making a certain sort of statement. Um, if not downright antisocial in some way, and antithetical to what it means to be American. Um, and, you know, w when I'm in Egypt, obviously, uh, I'm, I'm in the um, religious majority, and that's where I learned to practice the faith, and so that that's sort of informs my own practice, but at the same time, uh, I'm a foreigner, and, uh, you know, that comes with certain privileges and also certain boundaries. Mm. Um, and, and so that's sort of what I've, I've gotten used to until very, very recently when it, it seems like there's a great deal of pressure on lots of people to be spokesmen, spokespeople for their faith, their gender, their background, their culture, their community. Um, and given the fact that, that I am not at the center of any of those communities, I get very, very nervous when I'm sort of set up as, as being the representative of X. Uh, because most of my experiences are non-representative. And what I've been trying to do since there is this, this now great interest in these sort of facets of identity politics is say, well, you know whose experience is more representative, like this person over here, you know. And so I do a lot of that now. A lot of redirecting is like, no, you don't actually want me for this. You want this other person. I'll introduce you. Um, 
And, and so it's, when I hear those words, I'm like, oh God. <laughs> uh, because, you know, my, yeah, because those experiences don't really translate. And what you, when you speak about redirecting people to, you know, be a better representative of what it is that they may be looking to you for, um, we talked a little bit earlier about this. You had an experience with your, with the release of your very first book where mm -hmm. there was a really huge lesson that you took away from, um, from your experience dealing with, you know, the audience yeah. of when it was published. Um, would you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Uh, so the, the first nonfiction book, well, the, really the first book without pictures that I ever published <laughs> was The Butterfly Mosque, which was autobiographical. It grew out of um, emails and, and sort of, uh, we weren't even really calling it blogging back then, but blog post type things that I had been writing while I was living in Egypt. Um, and I'd kind of compiled them and, and uh, you know, several people have said, well, why don't you just sort of, you know, make a book out of it? Because it was a time that was very fraught. It was the middle of the Iraq war. 9-11 was still fresh in everybody's mind. And uh, the thought that my agent had and, and, you know, editors and people who were involved with the book is, well, maybe talking about Islam from your perspective um, will we'll sort of hit home for like a, a white Christian audience in a way that others might not because your background is similar to theirs. And so maybe, you know, you'll be able to have conversations with that audience that other people who have tried to kind of bridge that ideological gap have, have not been successful in doing. And, you know, being young and naive, I was like, well, yeah, I'll give it a shot. Why not? Let's try. Um, and then the book came out. And, you know, I did a book tour and I did a, several community reading type events. And what I discovered at these events was that the complete opposite was true. Mm. That because I was from a similar background to these sort of, you know, waspier audiences, they, they saw me as inherently traitorous. That what I had done was a betrayal on a very intimate level of what they believe themselves to be. And this crossed political lines. This is not a left-right thing. Um, you know, they might use different words. Uh, and still to this day, I, I get some of these, these comments that, you know, the, the people on the right wing would be more likely to use a word like traitor. People who were leftist or consider themselves leftist would use words like pervert, which is interesting. Um, uh, we could unpack that for days. Um, <laughs> and it, it, was, it was kind of an interesting rude awakening for, for me to have that experience and to realize, and that was kind of the beginning of the realization that I was not going to be central to these conversations. And that actually someone who grew up in the faith, who was maybe from an immigrant background or had grown up here in the United States, uh, in the religion was much better suited to have those conversations because those people who needed to hear it understand the duty to the past, they understand culture, they understand uh, loyalty to family, and when you couch the conversation about pretty much anything, but in this case Islam in that context, 
they are much more likely to say, okay, maybe we, we, we might still hate your religion, but we understand why it is that you believe these things and, and that there's, there's some commonality there in the thinking that, that culture is something very important and, and uh, you know, even if it doesn't make a whole ton of sense. Um, so I stopped doing pretty much all interfaith stuff or, or sort of overtly interfaith stuff and doing exactly what we were talking about. You know, when I would get asked, oh, do you want to do this interfaith thing? I would say, you don't want that baggage. You know, let me point you to this speaker, you know, who can do a much better job with this audience. Um, and uh, yeah, it, it was a big, it was a real awakening in terms of, uh, okay, here's where you stand. <laughs> that's, that's an incredible story to me. And um, it's, it's sad to have that sort of realization happen to you at that time, but it, it makes me wonder um, about how you deal with that besides, you know, sort of redirecting that conversation to other people who you think might be more suitable for those kinds of conversations. I mean, one of the things that goes through my head is, you know, there are in people, you know, for audiences, for people of color that I think of, uh, friends of mine who talk about being burdened with having mm -hmm. to do a lot of educating or explaining of, you know, their experience or what it is like to kind of walk through the world looking how they look or being who they are. And um, so I wonder what you think is yeah. a balance for that um, kind of conversation. I think it's really contextual. Um, you know, I'm happy to, to browbeat audiences about what they're doing wrong. <laughs> that's, that's fine with me. Uh, I will totally do that. And, you know, those conversations, those angry ones, I'm, I'm happy to have. But I think, uh, you know, when it comes to issues of experience, you cannot swap one life for another or pretend that the experience of a convert is the same as the experience of a Somali refugee mm -hmm. and that those things are interchangeable and that in fact assuming that interchangeability is part of the reason that we've remained in this loop um, because we like to essentialize groups of people and kind of distill them down to like a little you know a little takeaway a little soundbite um, and, and that's dangerous. So it, it really depends uh, on, on what, what the goal or the outcome of the conversation is meant to be, um, who has the desire to have those conversations and who don't, and the, who don't, who doesn't, oh my God. <laughs> they so they pay me to write, this is incredible. I can't even get out a grammatically well, correct sentence. We're all friends here, it's all good. <laughs> <laughs> um, because you know, there, there are people for whom that is a calling, and there are people who are like, no, I don't, I don't want this. This is emotionally taxing. I shouldn't have to do it. Um, and, and so I think it really, really has to do with the context. What conversation is it? What is the desired outcome? Uh, you know, is the person in the conversation or on the stage being offered up as a sacrificial lamb? Or is there real room for something actually productive? And, and I think a lot of that goes into, uh, you know, who, who ends up doing what. But obviously, you know, I wouldn't pass the mic to somebody who had not said specifically to me, like, you know, because there are people now who do this, like this mm -hmm. is what they do, this is their job. Mm -hmm. um, and I certainly wouldn't just sort of foist something like that on an unsuspecting <laughs> friend Absolutely. who was not interested. Absolutely. Um, 
you you grew up in a household that was atheist, mm -hmm. which I find fascinating. Um, and I'm wondering what kinds of conversations that you had with your parents, you know, about what atheism actually was. I grew up in a household that was very Christian, mm -hmm. so it was kind of pushed in that um, right. in that direction. But I sort of chose to walk away from that, yeah. um, and you chose to walk Toward towards it. a faith. <laughs> so we sort of have opposite paths, and I'm I'm curious yeah. what your your upbringing in that athe atheist environment did for you that led you to find Islam? Um, yeah, I tell people that I, I did try to be an atheist. I was just never very good at it. <laughs> um, you know, but it, it, I think faith is irrational. There are lots of people today trying to sell the idea that faith, faith can be attained rationally. I think they are all full of you know what. I mean, not maybe them as people, but I think their ideology is kind of you know what. Um, yeah, faith is something much more like love. You know, you, you cannot explain your way into love. I think sometimes you can probably explain your way out of it, but you certainly can't explain your way into it. <laughs> and I think faith as something felt is really kind of the same way. Um, it's kind of there it's, or it's not. And when, if you grow up in, in sort of a faith-based environment, you know, the particular ideas of your parents or your community can influence how that is expressed. Um, but I don't think you can sort of engender faith out of thin air where there is none. Mm -hmm. um, and so in my case, if there is a God gene or genes, I just have it, you know, it's just there. Uh, and so for me, uh, to grow up in an environment where it was sort of, human life was considered this trajectory and religion was something that we had to kind of get through as a species before we arrived at this enlightened state of, of atheism, which miraculously involved having the same five middle-aged white guys in charge <laughs> who had been in charge forever. I mean, it was kind of miraculous. Um, but, you know, it was seen as a natural evolution, and to go back to religion was backsliding, or evidence of intellectual deficiency, or perversion of some kind. Uh, this, this word gets used a lot in, in relation to, to <laughs> my choices. This is why I bring it up. I don't, I don't think it's a necessarily a good descriptor um, of, of a lot of things. But, uh, and, and so, it, Really, for most of my childhood and young adulthood, um, faith sort of, or, or God, felt like something very, very taboo and kind of shameful. Um, it, was, it was like, I'll, I'll make this metaphor. Let's say every time you said, I love X, somebody said, uh-uh-uh-uh-uh. Love is not a real thing. What you are feeling is a certain release of hormones and neurotransmitters in your brain to facilitate social bonding. <laughs> and you're like, okay, okay, all right. I'm, I'm feeling a release of certain neurotransmitters to facilitate social bonding. <laughs> yes. And every time you tried to say the word love, it was, no, that is not love. There is no such thing as love. Mm. That's what it was like. Um, and, uh, you know, if there are atheist parents out there who would like their kids to preferably end up atheist and would like to avoid this, I can give you some advice. Um, <laughs> Um, so it, it really was, for me, a matter of getting to the point where I, I could either pursue faith as a thing and start using the word God unironically, or I could sort of begin to lose 
my grasp on my own sanity and sense of self. Mm. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, that's, that's very particular, you know? Like, it, 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 uh, it doesn't necessarily translate to, yeah, yeah, to what somebody else's to. experience. Yeah, mm. yeah it, I was just thinking it could be hard for someone maybe to wrap around, um, just to wrap around their mind around the idea of why you would want to, you know, you've been raised in an atheist household and mm -hmm. that you would choose to convert to Islam in our culture that we live in now, we're just exposed to so many negative, yeah. you know, stereotypes and ideas about Islam and the Muslim faith in general. But you talked about mm -hmm. why a lot of this in your memoir, um, The Butterfly Mosque, and you, you talked about the difficulty that you had um, of having conversations with yeah. some friends and family. And, um, and I'm wondering how those conversations have changed over the years. Are you still having them? And are they still difficult or have they gotten easier? You know, that's an interesting question. Um, I, I do still have them, um, <clears throat> but typically now I'm having them with people I've known for shorter periods of time. Uh, you know, the, the people who thought I was no longer worth knowing once, once I had converted are now more or less gone. I mean, not, not dead, but they're out of my life. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, <laughs> so there's, there's sort of a sorting natural sorting that has taken place over the last 15 years. Mm -hmm. but, uh, um, but I do still occasionally have those conversations with people I've just met or, or know in some different context. Um, I, I will say they, they were hard for a while, but then ironically, over the course of the past couple of years, things have gotten so bad that these conversations have actually gotten a lot easier, especially because there are now alliances across boundaries in this country that didn't exist before. I remember at the very beginning of my career in comics, I got this most amazing hate mail. I kept it because it was so extraordinary. Every line was like a different color and a different font. Oh. Um, it was a work of art. Uh, and, <laughs> and this person accused me of being part of the, I'm trying to get this exactly right, the socialist, homosexual, Islamic attack on American values. And I was like, wow, that is not a real thing. <laughs> but it sounds fabulous. Um, and, and it was, you know, I filed it away. I was like, who could possibly think that all of these things, like, these, these are diametrically opposed ideas here. Like, what the hell is going on? Um, but then, you know, we, we came to our current catastrophe, and because there was so much pressure against so many groups, that, you know, now the conversations have changed very radically, and it's, it's assumed that somebody like me is, in fact, part of the actual, real, and now very much existent socialist, homosexual, Muslim attack on American <laughs> values. Um, and I, I kind of love it. Uh, <laughs> So, you know, like it, it was sort of like this imaginary thing that was made real by the people who feared it. So my hat is off to them. I didn't think I'd see it in my lifetime. Um, but they did it. I mean, it's, so now it's, it's easier because it is, it's not assumed that, you know, if you wear a headscarf, you are automatically homophobic because you have women in headscarves marching in LGBTQ rights 
parades and you know we all realize that we have to get each other's backs and it's changed things mm -hmm. and and we see so many differences now with how a lot of these divisions are happening and or communities are coming together right yeah. to, to to make sure that that keeps happening and what's interesting to me is <laughs> the way that that person described that is very different from how you describe um, <laughs> coming to uh, Islam and your faith as, as, a, as a Muslim. It's, there's this wonderful passage in your uh, memoir and, and um, it's where you are kind of describing how you came to the faith after one of your friends asked you, why Islam? So mm -hmm. um, I'm going to read this passage to you now. Um, I'm just going to sit here and wince because <laughs> I wrote this when I was 23. <laughs> we went back and forth. Who's going to read this? <laughs> I'll, I'll go ahead and do it. So um, I discovered I was a monotheist. That rules out polytheism. I have also had a problem with authority, which rules out any religion with a priesthood or leader who claims to be God's representative on earth. And I cannot believe that having given us these bodies, God thinks we should be virgins unless we desperately feel a need to reproduce. That rules out any religion that's against family planning or sex for fun rather than procreation. Islam is an anti-authoritarian, sex-positive monotheism. Man, I should have... <laughs> Anyway, it's very <laughs> <laughs> well. And so my next question is basically, do you still feel that way, or how has that evolved since I you've mean, written yeah. that? I mean, yeah, on some level, certainly, yeah. Um, I don't know that I would package it in that particular way. I mean, it's when I was writing this, I was number one, very young. Um, I mean, like if you can't be wildly optimistic when you're 23, what is the point of being 23, really? Um, <laughs> But, you know, so my, my ideas about a lot of things have sort of tempered with age and humor, <laughs> which tends to come with age. Um, I make myself sound ancient. I just turned 35. I'm really not that old. I, I feel that old, though. So, you know, it's, it's, I would say that certainly um, there, are, there are ideas that you can take away from the religion that are certainly that. And... Uh, you know, in a place like Egypt or even Iran, um, which are very conservative, two very different forms of Islam, but but still, uh, you know, where Islam is the is the religion of the state, you can walk into a pharmacy as a woman and buy birth control pills. No fuss, no muss. Nobody cares. Nobody's going to look down their nose at you. Uh, you know, they might glance at your hand to see if you're wearing a wedding ring and sort of like give you the side eye if you're not. Um, but no, you know, like, in, yeah, in, in Egypt, when I was living there, you could walk into a pharmacy without a prescription and get birth control pills that would set you back, like, maybe $2. Um, so, very certainly... Very different idea of what a lot of us have of, you know, yeah, being... Yeah, very different. Very different. Very different. Um, you know, and it's, it's sort of taken for granted that, that, you know, sex is primarily for fun because the trajectory of the development of the philosophy of the religion was just on a completely different path than, say, Western Christianity. Um, and I don't want to be unfair to Western Christianity either. That's a lot of things. And you could talk to five different Christians and, and you know, get four who said, like, yes, we are very sex positive and, and another one who says something completely different. So, mm -hmm. you know, I don't want to disparage any other form of, of faith, but um, I mean, there were things that even to me as a convert were shocking living in the Muslim world, like uh, that, that I, I sort of assumed because 
culturally I was working from a Christian standpoint that anything that would be sort of censured here by religious conservatives or cultural conservatives would likewise be censured there, but more so. Hmm. So to, you know, like be walking along Tahrir Square, the site of the famous revolution, and go by this like lingerie store with these, with like edible underwear advertised, like <laughs> sitting there in the window. And, you know, women and men and everybody sort of stopping and, and looking and, and being like, you know, women dressed like me, looking and being like, oh, oh look, edible underwear. Um, like, the, it was, I was kind of blown away. I was like, how, how do these two, I don't understand. Because we're, we're so hardwired to think that religion means a particular thing. Mm. Um, and, you know, even after I had begun to practice, I was still surprised mm. by how many things were different. Mm. What's, what was the most surprising thing besides edible underwear? Besides the edible, <laughs> on display in Tahrir Square. Um, oh my gosh, gosh, if I had to pick Maybe one. Maybe that was the most surprising that thing. That was, I mean, you know, on a, <laughs> I have to say, this is not religious, but this was a culture shock thing. Turning on the Hezbollah channel and seeing the dancing clown in the children's hour was, was that's when I knew I was no longer in the United States. Um, <laughs> But uh, yeah, I mean, it, 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 was, it was really kind of an awakening for me, which is why I think a lot of Butterfly Mosque comes off as so perky. <laughs> because I was like, this is amazing. Like mm. all, all the things that I have been told about this part of the world are completely the opposite. Um, but some of the things are still true. And you know, you don't want to oversell uh, the way those differences at the expense of pointing out that there are real and deep and abiding flaws um, that do not go away just by sort of lacquering over them. Based on what you said, I'm going to look back at my 20s and be much kinder to my 20-year-old my self. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much for that. Um, and just kind of moving on to your days of becoming a journalist and living in Egypt and doing some very serious reporting there. Um, I'm wondering if you... I don't know if I'd call it very serious, <laughs> mildly serious, maybe. I, well, I consider that serious. Um, when you look back on that time, what are some of the most potent takeaway lessons for you about writing true stories about that, you know, that place in the world at that time? You know, that was, that was really probably the one situation in which being on the periphery, not being in the midst of any one particular community really, really worked to a certain advantage um, because I could go into buildings that all the other Western reporters I knew could not go into because in Egypt, especially during prayer times, mosques that are not uh, historical buildings, in other words, they're not like cathedral equivalents, are closed to tourists. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, to non-Muslims, uh, foreigners living there as well. Um, and I could go into those places. So I had access to people who other journalists that I knew did not have access to. Um, and I could talk to them, number one in Arabic, um, but also from a perspective that was kind of hard to get. And I didn't really, I didn't do breaking news. I did cultural stories. Um, you know, the, the, the biggest, my, my scoop, my big scoop while I was there was uh, I got to do the first 
English language interview of the then Grand Mufti of Egypt after he was made Grand Mufti. Um, so uh, that, was, that was interesting, and that got picked up by the Atlantic. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, who had no idea who, what a hack I was. Uh, <laughs> no, 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 but no. <laughs> it's, um, you know, it, but it, it really was interesting to be able to tell those stories because I was, I mean, I was like, really there is no zealot like a convert. So I'd go to interviews and I would bring a mahram with me. I, I would bring either my husband or my father-in-law who are, I mean, two of the most extraordinary men I've ever met. My, my father-in-law, to whom the, the book is dedicated, died shortly after we moved here. But, and people would sort of be stunned. They would be like, what, what is this? They're, you know, because most, even most Egyptian journalists would not follow those like very religious protocols anymore. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, a lot of people found that sort of charming or weird enough that they would like open up in a way that they might not have to somebody mm -hmm. else. They were like, you're so weird. Like, I don't even know what I should say and not say around you. Um, <laughs> And it really worked because people would, would open up and, and I could get snippets of something very real uh, because I couldn't be located, you know, sort of within, within anything really. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and it was really kind of extraordinary, but a lot of pressure at the same time because, you know, there's, there's a lot that goes into making, you know this, you are an expert in this, real stories fit into a three-act structure that people's brains can sort of glom onto. Mm -hmm. Because real life, real life does not work in a three-act structure. And, uh, but stories kind of have to. And I find it very unnerving because at many, many points, I would be pressured to make those stories fit in ways that I found bordered on dishonesty. Mm -hmm. And that's ultimately why I stopped. Um, because Typically, even editors at, at very wonderful, highly respected, politically whatever newspapers would give a story, um, uh, what am I trying to say? An edit? And Yeah, well, they would, they would give you an assignment, assignment, that's... Oh, right, yes, okay. Again, they, they pay me to write this stuff. Um, <laughs> you know, they would give assignments and already have an idea in their minds of how they wanted it to turn out with a particular spin. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was impossible to get away from mm. and really, really began to rub me the wrong way. I understand that. Yeah. I understand that. I know you do. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it can be difficult to get all the, the different sort of complex little details into those stories that you mm -hmm. would really like them to have to kind of give people the bigger picture, but you are condensed to a shorter amount of time or a mm -hmm. certain amount of words or you know, somebody's preconceived notion of what right. that story should be versus what you what have it turns seen, out to be. Yeah. What it turns out to be or what you have seen. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. It's the perfect segue into the question that I had for you, which was how did you find yourself transitioning from journalism into comics? Because I'm thinking, wow. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> what a what a jump, what a leap. But um Um for me it it felt very natural. I'd 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 been a comics geek since I was about 10 years old. Um, I grew up with 90s X-Men. <laughs> the Chris Claremont books, the Fox Kids uh, cartoon, which, don't go back and watch it again. I made that mistake. <laughs> the magic was gone. <laughs> it was... 
Yeah, I mean, yeah. You, you get down the line and something happened with the production or they moved the studio somewhere and you're like, what is happening here? Um, but no, I mean, it was, it was like, I mean, talk about a religious experience. For, for 10-year-old me and 11-year-old me, X-Men was like church. I mean, it was like, I vivid, vividly remember being, I must have been 11 or 12-ish, yeah, maybe 11, and this was right at the beginning of, you know, Bush 1, Iraq War 1, the prequel, you know, and they interrupted... The Phantom Menace. The Phantom Menace. Um, and it was Saturday morning, and X-Men was due to come on, and there was George H.W. not W. on the screen making some sort of, you know, giving like a press thing, briefing about the war. And I was like, oh my God, stop. Oh my God, X-Men is supposed to be on. What are you doing? Uh, and then, you know, it went over and it went off the air and I was like, oh, please tell me they're not just going to skip it. And they skipped it. And like, literally, the, the pain stayed with me for weeks and is <laughs> tangible to this day. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, it, it, I'd always loved comics. In, um, in high school, I sort of transitioned to sort of the gothier British invasion stuff that was coming mm -hmm. out at the time. Uh, you know, Sandman, mm. Shade the Changing Man. Oh, yeah. <laughs> which is one of the best series of all times. You want to talk about before its time. I mean, like, Shade was so far before its time that people read it and they were like, what even is this? But you read it today and you're like, oh my God, it's like he looked 30 years into the future. <laughs> um, so it's, it's really amazing. And so I knew that I wanted to write comics, but then, as now, it was not entirely clear how one does that. <laughs> because, you know, in regular publishing, it's very straightforward. You write a book, you send it to an agent, the agent says yes or no, and then if they say yes, they'll send it to publishers who then say yes or no. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's like not all that different, honestly, from applying for college. Um, <laughs> but, uh, Comics functions much more like film. It's much more of a handshake business. It's mm. more about who you know. Mm. Um, and so if you were like me and knew no one and nothing, like Jon Snow, or you were kind of like, <laughs> how, do I, how do I make this happen? So I'd actually written the script for what would eventually become Cairo, my mm. first graphic novel, before I was doing any journalism of any kind. Mm. But it just kind of sat there for several years because I had nobody to send it to. Because I didn't know how you even did that. Like, how do you send an editor? Do you send them to editors? Do you send scripts to editors? Is that even a thing that happens? Wow. Um, and it took, like, it took a long process of, you know, I had met Keith Giffen in college when I was interning for one of the very earliest digital comic book companies. And he had an editor who was at DC but in the superhero sort of world. And like, so he said, I like this. Can I show it to my editor? And I said, sure. And he showed it to her. She was like, I like this, but I, this isn't superhero stuff. I don't do superheroes. Let me give it to Karen Berger. She gave it to Karen Berger. Karen Berger was like, I don't know this person. Um, <coughs> so it sat on her desk for a long time. So really, there was like a period of about three years comprising like pretty much the sum total of my very short career in journalism when I was trying to get a comic book published. And <coughs> the takeaway from that is, it is easier to get published in the New York Times than it is to publish a single volume of comics. Wow. And I know that firsthand. Well, obviously it was meant to happen. 
I guess. Because it did, eventually. No, it, 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 I mean, it, it still bugs me because now there are a lot of people, I'm just going to open this up like this, I'm sorry. Um, Why don't you let me, oh, you no, have it. It's okay. all right, yeah, I think I've, all right, <laughs> I figured it out. Um, there are a lot of people now, and especially younger kids who are in middle and high school who are like, I want to write comics or I want to draw comics, mm -hmm. how do I do that? And I do not have a career path to give to them. It, it seems like... Which is a, not right. It seems nebulous. It seems like a very difficult industry to break into. So yeah. that's why I was so curious to know how yeah, do you it, take journalism into comics? Yeah, yeah. It, it, was, it, was that, it was like six degrees of separation. <laughs> Um, but if you don't get, if you don't have that first degree, mm -hmm. it's very, very difficult to make that jump. Um, so I really, really hope this is not going to happen. But I really, really wish that they, the big comic book publishers, would make some sort of open submissions policy, or at least clarify mm. the submission policy. Um, you know, so that we, you know, so that there's there's More new talent can move into the industry. Yeah, yeah. There. Um, so I just want to throw out. A little prompt for those in the audience. We're at about 8:20, 8:21, I think now, and uh, we're gonna leave the last 20, 25 minutes or so for audience questions. So, get them ready, and we'll be coming to you for your questions. Um, um, but until then, I want to talk a little bit about um, Ms. Kamala Khan, Ms. Marvel. Um, I really love that comic. I just have to tell you, <laughs> um, and I'm wondering. Um, What's her origin story? How did that come to be within Marvel and, mm -hmm. you know, make it to the real world? Because it's an amazing thing to have out there in our yeah. culture right now to kind of see these, you know, amazing stories come to an audience that, you know, everyone can kind of grasp what it's like to have all this, the, the diversity within mm -hmm. um, Islam and, and Muslim culture. Um, so the way that all started was I got a call really out of the blue in, it must have been 2011 uh, or early 2012 from Sana Amanat at Marvel and Stephen Wacker, who at that point was her editor. Mm. And at that point, they were both working in the X-Men office. Um, the X-Men cool. office is a thing. Uh, <laughs> That's totally cool. <laughs> it is a thing. Um, and they, they just, they cold called me. I had done almost nothing for Marvel that year. I'd done like a little short with Ming Doyle for girl comics. Uh, and I guess I had done Mystic the year before, but I really had done almost nothing in comics at all for about a year because I had been, I'd written Aleph. I, I went on a very long book tour with that. Um, I had two books and two babies within the space of 20 months. <laughs> Um, so you really had four babies. Really, I had four babies. <laughs> they were not all planned to sort of come out in that order. Um, but that's how it happened. <laughs> uh, but, but yeah, so that's what I was doing. And they, they literally called me one day out of the blue. I was like lactating. And I had like an ice pack. Out. This is way too much information. <laughs> this is what happens when I do events in Seattle. I'm like, I probably know half of you. It's, it's like, we're all, we're all friends. I can give you the gory details. Um, and so they called me and they were like, okay, here's, what, here's this pitch. We want to create a new YA American Muslim superheroine and put her on her own ongoing series. Would you develop the character and write the series? 
So they already had it in mind. Well, they had, that's all they had. There was oh. no name, no background, no power set, no, I mean, she wasn't even Ms. Marvel at that point. Mm. Um, so she didn't even have like a code name. Um, it was just that, that's all it was. And it had evolved from conversations that Sana and Steve had had about Sana's childhood. She mm. would apparently tell him stories about, you know, like the, the, the funny things and the tragedy and, and, and the stuff of, of her own childhood as, uh, you know, a first generation um, American w with immigrant parents and, and everything that that entailed. And uh, they were like, let's see, are there any Muslim women who write superhero comics in North America? <laughs> there is one. <laughs> and they were like, really, there was only one person we could call for this. Uh, so here we are. And I almost cracked up laughing. I was like, you guys, are, no, you don't, you don't really want to write this. You don't want this series, right? Uh, and I told them, I was like, you are going to have to hire an intern to open all the hate mail, like just a hate mail intern. Um, because, you know, I was, these were the days of the, like, you know, socialist homosexual attack on American values. Um, you know, like, this was the mail that I got on, like, a weekly basis. I was like, this is, and it was for writing Superman, having nothing to do with anything about Islam or anything else. Um, my, my presence in the industry was considered a form of, like, stealth jihad or, like, a, no, that's a real term. Like, that is a non-ironic term used by, you know, those we do not speak of. Um, and uh, so, so that was really it. But I was like, I cannot believe that Marvel is pitching me this book. Like this, this I would never pitch this book in a million years because it's, it's the trifecta of death, as I called it. The, the prevailing wisdom at the time said that new characters do not sell, mm. female characters do not sell, and minority characters do not sell. And this was all three. Um, wow. I was like, we are going to sell a grand total of 2,000 copies. And that's like including our friends and family. And, you know, get nominated for one Eisner, which we will not win, and then go back to doing what we've always been doing. Uh, but they were like, no, we're gonna do it. We're gonna put some muscle behind it. It's, it's gonna be great. It's, it's gonna have the support of the PR team. So I was like, all right. <laughs> um, and then Sana and I spent 18 flipping months almost developing this character. And she was like, she could be anything. She said, Willow, you can make her a convert if you want. And I was like, no, because mm -hmm. by that time I had learned, like, this is, this is not going to be useful mm -hmm. to people. And it's going to seem evangelical because, you know, it, no matter how we couch it, it's going to seem like we're saying, like, convert to Islam and you too can have superpowers. <laughs> um, So that was a non, that was, I was like, I'm flattered, but the, you, yeah, that's, that's, we don't want that, that headache. So we went back and forth for a long time until I was like, finally like, Sana, this whole thing was inspired by conversations you had about your childhood mm -hmm. with Steve. Why are we overthinking this? Let's just make her a Pakistani American. And that way, if you think I'm full of you know what, you can just put the brakes on. Um, and, uh, and, and it sort of came from there. And Jersey City was, for me, then inevitable because I thought, okay, the setting is going to have as much significance as anything else because this is going to be a junior superhero. She's got no bona fides in the superheroing community. Uh, you know, she's going to be very DIY. We'd had long conversations about, okay, how does she get her costume? And I'd be like, can't we do like the hand wavy stuff that everybody always does in these series? And so I was like, nope, nope, game it all the way out. Um, 
And I was like, Jersey City is perfect because everybody loves to hate New Jersey. I'm a Jersey girl, Sana was a Jersey girl. Um, so we had, we communed over being Jersey girls. Uh, you know, if I talk too long, the Jersey starts to come out. But it, it made so much sense because you could see Manhattan, which is the epicenter of the Marvel Universe, and yet you're apart from it. You're sort of in this backwater. And there is a large, vibrant, historically significant Pakistani Muslim community there. So I was like, perfect. <laughs> um, and so, and, and that's when it really all clicked. Mm -hmm. Because it's not just the character, it's the setting, it's the family, it's the whole thing. And now all of those things, and, and Jersey City in particular, have become so tightly connected to that character that I cannot write an arc outside of Jersey City. Like I've pitched Sana, I was like, let's send her to space. <laughs> and Sana's like, no. <laughs> I'm like, I love Jersey City, you love Jersey City. Like literally they've painted a mural in the hallway of the school upon which her school is based, but like, let's, let's do something else. And Sana's like, no. <laughs> wow. So wow. it was, yeah, it, it was just, that's when it was magic. That's that's, that's really great. Um, I have a question here from my beautiful friend and coworker, Amina Al-Sadi, who uh, is a producer at KUW Public Radio, and we're all fans of, of your comic. And, but she wanted to know, um, there are as many types of Muslim American mm -hmm. girls as there, as there are fingerprints. And, <laughs> you know, so there's a lot of diversity in, in the community, um, as there is in a lot of different communities, but we don't really get to see that diversity portrayed in our media that often. Mm -hmm. And so how do you handle putting, you know, the pressure of creating that pop culture character mm -hmm. um, that's portraying such an underrepresented group? I mean, you yourself said you're getting all this hate mail mm -hmm. already. Mm -hmm. um, I'm wondering, did the hate mail change once that comment <laughs> come out? Or, um, <laughs> no, I mean, it was, really, it was kind of more of the same except more urgent because they're like, oh my God, now, now there's Iron Man has been involved and oh my, like, <laughs> now it's serious. Um, <laughs> now you're playing with our toys. Um, so it was, it, it didn't really change. Um, but Sana and I, I mean, there was a lot of anxiety and, and it would not have, like this would not have been the same, I think, without the exact team that we had with, with Sana sort of at the helm and Adrian doing those, you know, first amazing arcs and setting the tone and all of that. Because like, you know, Sana and I could talk about all of these anxieties and not need to sort of hold each other's hand. Like we, we, knew, we both knew sort of what the score was. And there was a lot of pressure for Kamala to be a certain way. Mm. You know, like there was, there was sort of two ways really that, that most positive, in heavy air quotes, Muslim characters, Muslim girls are portrayed in the media. One is like the picture perfect Muslim girl. Like she wears a headscarf in exactly the right way. There's never any tension. There are no problems. Um, you know, there's magically no racism anywhere. Everybody loves everybody. Everybody gets along. Everything is fine. Um, that's one. The other one is the, you know, the character is rebelling against this oppressive family structure slash religion. Her father either wants to chop off body parts or force her into marriage or whatever or send her back to some undisclosed country. And uh, Law she, and order. Yes. 
Special Victims Unit. Uh, uh, yes. Uh, yeah, you're that, you're the model minority, or you're the SVU episode. Yeah. And well, those I was just are thinking, the two. I saw that SVU episode. So. Yeah. There's probably several. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's, you know, and I think the, the burden of representation that goes into a character from a massively underrepresented group is mm -hmm. that they are expected to be all things to all people, mm -hmm. and they can't be, and they shouldn't be. Um, because what you want is a real character who feels singular and, per and, and specific and particular. Um, and you can't do that by just sort of making them be a pastiche of everybody. So what we did was, Kamala is a very particular way, mm -hmm. um, but we surrounded her with other kinds of Muslims. Mm -hmm. She's got this older brother who's sort of coded as Salafi. Uh, you know, like he's he's very strict, very observant, but he's a, you know he's a good guy. Mm -hmm. He sticks up for her. There's real love there, even though they don't get along all the time. Um, you know, like her parents have different ideas. They're not identical to each other. Mm -hmm. um, they, it was really important to me to portray Muslim men in nuanced, loving roles because, mm -hmm. I mean, we talk about Muslim women being 2D, but. Muslim men, 100% of the time, even though even if they're like positive, are terrorism adjacent in some way. Mm. Um, <laughs> so having a sheikh who was not, you know, terrorism adjacent, a dad, a brother who were not terrorism adjacent, was super super important. Uh, you know, and we'd have different kinds of Muslim girls too. Mm. You know, like her best friend Nakia is like this sort of woke hijabi, who's like into, uh, I mean, like, and this, this, is, this, this sort of came about before this was really a cultural phenomenon, mm -hmm. but just based on people that I knew. Um, so, because again, I wanted to say, well, we, I wanted her to have a friend who who's, wears hijab, but is not necessarily, again, that picture perfect, whatever, that maybe she has reasons for what she does that are not strictly religious, and that she has a political ideology and all of this stuff. So you can surround the character with people who are very different, but mm -hmm. the character themselves has to be specific. That's wonderful and a lovely way of being able to give us that much more of a look of what the community is like that surrounds her so that you get a, more of an idea of what she's coming from mm -hmm. as a character. Um, so we're getting close to, to audience questions here, so I'll just I've had to throw out a lot of my questions, but I will just I'm sorry, ask I my favorite. No, it's, it's <laughs> totally fine. Um, my the question that I want to ask is, what is your favorite? Um, okay, I have to pick between three now that I really wanted to ask. Oh no! <laughs> but, um, so I guess what I would ask you is, who is inspiring you right now in pop art, <clears throat> pop culture, writing stories? Oh wow! Um, in terms of um, <clears throat> really making you go, wow, I'd like to aspire to be that or put some of that in my work. There's, there's so much good stuff coming out right now in comics, uh, in, in literature, in music. I really feel like as horrible as things are right now, <laughs> there have been voices that I think have, have taken on a significance and an importance because we know how precious they are now in a way that we ne we might not have before, mm -hmm. in a way that we might have taken for granted before. Mm -hmm. um, and it, there's so much, especially now in comics, that was just not there 10 years ago. Um, I love Saladin Ahmad's Black Bolt. 
Uh, it's so good. It's it's really like I haven't been as excited. I thought I was like done with. I thought we were done with sort of the meta narrative superhero stuff. We were not done. Uh, uh, Saladin is going to get the last word. Um, he's doing great stuff. Who else do I love? N.K. Jameson is. Uh, I mean, like talk about taking a genre like fantasy that we usually associate with tropes that can either work or not and sort of breaking them down and holding them upside down and shaking them to see what falls out of their pockets. <laughs> um, you know, it, so great stuff. Uh, now I'm like, God, I'm just gonna wanna go through a list of things. <laughs> um, you know, it, it's, it's really like when, when I can wake up out of my stupor at like a Marvel editorial retreat and see Ta-Nehisi Coates has materialized across the table, wow. like that's, that's flipping cool. That's, yeah, that was a thing that happened. Um, I kind of like zoned out looking I need, like I was paying attention. I need like, that right. story right now. Oh my God. <laughs> so now I'm like, okay, what can I talk about without breaking my NDA? Oh. Uh, Okay, so let's see. No, I'll just talk generic. So we were, we were talking about event stuff, and people like to geek out about very obscure points of continuity from the 70s and imbue them with vital significance. And at certain points, I just kind of like, you know, appear to be paying attention when I'm not. So I wasn't really asleep as such, but I'd really zoned out, and I kind of zoned back in and Tanasi Coates was sitting across the table, not at the table, it was a big table, across the table from wow. me. And I was like, oh my God, that's Tanasi Coates <laughs> in Marvel <laughs> at this editorial retreat. What is even happening? Um, and then I think I kind of stalked him for the rest of the day. <laughs> because I, like, I would end up in these meetings where it was like me, him, and two editors. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure this is not my meeting. <laughs> I'm like, is that, I don't even, I'm just going to sit down. Um, so yeah, that was the thing that happened. Uh, so no Kamala Khan, Black Panther crossovers? Well, you'll notice that I sent her best friend to Wakanda. Um, <laughs> Excellent. I did it on purpose. I mean, there are no immediate plans, but like, I was like, I'm just going to leave that there. So it's there <laughs> if we need it. Um, <laughs> I don't know. The last email that I got from Ta-Nehisi Coates was about World of Warcraft, so I don't know how soon that's going to happen. But, but so I don't know. But yeah, okay. I mean, the possibility is there. <laughs> so we're going to take audience questions now, and uh, our lovely Phil Donahue of for tonight is Zaki. He's got the microphone that he's going to bring around. So why don't we start with you? Hi. Um, Hello. So, one thing you mentioned about being a foundational aspect of Kamala is that she, coming into it, didn't have any of the bona fides or like mm -hmm. legacy background stuff. What's different about writing the character now that she has an Avengers ID card? Uh, she burned that ID card. No. <laughs> well, it's, what's interesting now is that she exists outside of our book. And I, I say our and we when I talk about Ms. Marvel, not because I think I'm the Queen of England, but because it's the work of many people. Uh, so when I say we, I mean me and Sana and Adrian and Takeshi Miyazawa and all of those guys. Team Ms. Marvel. So it used to be that she was just sort of our baby and nobody else got to do anything with her. 
Uh, but now she's like out in the world and in other people's books and in an Avengers book that I don't write and in, what is it even, Champions, uh, that one. <laughs> uh, you know, and she's in the cartoon and all of this other stuff. And most of the time I find out about that when you guys do on Twitter. Um, so now it's changed because, uh, you know, like, like an actual child, she has sort of grown wings and flown from the nest. Uh, and with a superhero, that's really what you want. With any other form of art, visual art, novels, or whatever, you sort of, your IP is very precious and it belongs to you and if somebody treads on that, like, it's very upsetting. Um, but with a superhero, you want them to become part of that common culture and to get off of the page and have their own life in our, you know, in our broader culture. Uh, and 99.9% .9 of superheroes never make that jump. And we certainly did not expect Ms. Marvel to make that jump. Um, Sana and I used to joke, like when we were talking about the series at the very beginning, we were like, okay, I had, and I still have this in a drawer, like a three issue exit strategy because we assumed that we were gonna get canned in the first year. And when we talked, we'd be like, okay, maybe we can work her into this storyline or whatever in the Marvel U. I mean, it's not like they're gonna put her on the Avengers. <laughs> and like, that was the joke. That was the joke that we would joke about. And then a year later, she was on the Avengers. Wow. Um, so it's, it's just incredibly cool to me. And um, you know, even though She's in other stories now, and she will inevitably become something not quite the same as the character that I helped co-create. That is okay. Um, and I'm glad that she will probably, at this point, given the nature of Disney, be around long after I am gone. And that is really, really cool. That, that is cool. Um, so, this is a... A little bit of a harder question. Um, so, what happens? Like you've you've created these characters, especially Kamala, who is a, a light to so many people. Like so many mm -hmm. readers, so many people have 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 uh, see her as a touch point in a world that is very fraught. Mm -hmm. So, what happens when the company that publishes Kamala chooses to tell her story or makes decisions that are very antithetical to mm -hmm. the character that you've created as she continues even after you know in other places like what how, how does that make you feel and like <laughs> and and can you do anything about it do you do anything about it? like what, what like do you scream into a pillow for hours like, like what what happens i cultivate sort of a zen non-attachment no um <clears throat> no but really uh you know, it, it's, when I signed up for this, I knew from sort of a cynical standpoint kind of what I was getting into. Um, you know, I've, I've worked on and off for the big two, Marvel and DC now for upwards of 10 years. Mm -hmm. And um, it's, it's, you are always the contractor. You know, it's, it's, it's that way. <laughs> And sometimes you can make really cool things and, and kind of transcend that role a little bit, and sometimes you can't. Um, 
with something like Kamala, uh, I, you know, I end up not, I, I end up purposefully not hovering. Let's put it that way. Um, when other writers come to me specifically and say, hey, I, you know, I want to use Kamala in X, can you give me some advice? Would she say blah, blah, blah? Then I will happily give that advice. If they do not seek my advice, I do not preemptively offer it. Um, there, you know, I, I will say that there does seem to be a little bit of healthy paranoia with this particular character in terms of getting certain things right because uh, I do get asked that question a lot more for her than I ever have for any other character I've written. And, um, you know, it, it, I've been asked, like, would she eat chocolate? Like, is that something Muslims do? And I'm like, yes, oh my god. Um, yes. So, I mean, like, I'm glad that the desire is there to be, to, you know, like, to, to, to stay true to, to that. Um, and I do have like edicts that I lay down. I was like, yes, you can use Kamala, but like, you know, she should not smoke. She does not drink. Uh, you know, she does not have the SEX. If you do any of these things, I will be very upset. Um, and uh, I mean, th there's, there's, I think, enough of a sense that, that this is kind of a, a lightning in the bottle instance that, that people respect that more or less. But then again, also, these characters and these stories are the invisible battlegrounds upon which we fight the wars over our culture. Um, and there can be contradictory agendas at play, depending on who is writing what. And I don't think right now comics have become more political than they were before. I think it's for the first time there is tension within the cohort of people who, who make the comics. And there didn't used to be because they used to all be friends. Um, and that's slowly changing. So we're, we're seeing it more now than we might have before. Um, and uh, I, I do not have final say over anything that happens to any of my characters that I write for either DC or Marvel. Um, so all I can really do is, is try to do <laughs> the best I can with the pages I am given. And, uh, and, and realize that these are things and people and characters that will go off and live lives independent of what I might have planned for them. Hi. Uh, I think the first two questions totally took what I was going to ask you. So um, instead, I want to know about your, your new novel. I read Alif last year and I loved it. Can you tell us anything about I think you said you finished writing your next novel. Is, can you tell us what it's about at all? Or? Um, yes. In fact, <clears throat> uh, I, I may have sold it this morning. Um, <laughs> I can't. Breaking news. <laughs> the, uh, the ink is not dry on the paper, so I can't say to who or when it will be out or any more detail than that. But yes, it is, it is a real thing. Um, if you liked Aleph, you will be happy to know that there are characters who put in an appearance in this book as well, from that book. I will say that this book is set 500 years earlier, so that will probably rule out any but a few characters that you might have had in your mind at that moment. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's done. <laughs> and it's, it's going to be published. Uh, but I'm hoping within the next week or so I can, I can make an actual official announcement. But you guys are getting it first from the horse's mouth. That's awesome. So um, you, 
Oh, go oh. ahead. Sorry, okay. go ahead. Okay. So you mentioned that uh, you really got your start with comics uh, with the X-Men. Mm -hmm. And if I remember correctly, one of the first superheroes that Kamala teamed up with was Wolverine. So what was, I want to know more about that storyline. What kind of went into it? What was it like to finally, like, because it kind of, like, just from a writer's perspective, it kind of seems like an arc that's kind of come full circle, like mm -hmm. you started off here and now it's the... It's come all the way around. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, that was interesting. Um, it was clear by the time the second issue came out that this was going to be a thing, uh, which took everybody, myself included, kind of by surprise. So, you know, Sana and I had talked about doing, like, a, a two-parter, a two-part uh, story with another character who was sort of more established um, early on in the series, but then, uh, you know, the first issue came out and it was a big thing and it was getting a lot of press and we were in eight printings and the conversation went from like, here is the list of approved characters that you could use for this two-parter to, Willow, what characters would you like to use for this two-parter? <laughs> um, and I said, Wolverine! And Sana was like, really? She's like, that is not an obvious choice for this genre of YA <laughs> that we are doing now. And I was like, no, it's the perfect choice. <laughs> he would be so freaked out by her. Um, it would be amazing. And it was really catharsis more than anything else because I was like, you know, I had a crush on Wolverine before I really even understood what a crush was. <laughs> You know, when I was like 11 and, and religiously watching the X-Men cartoons. Um, so for me, it, it really did, from an artistic standpoint, feel like coming full circle because here was the character that got me into comics and now I could write him into the story. And, uh, and the ability to do that was just very, very cool, especially at that time because it, it's actually a very sad story if you know what's going on in the wider Marvel Universe, because he's dying. And he knows that and she doesn't. Mm -hmm. And so to, to be able to write that character at that point in time was really, really cool. And, but also very sad. Because I had not been following the big event stuff and I, I did not realize that they were going to kill him off that soon. And Sana was like, well, you know that he's like dying. And I was like, he's not dying, no, no, he's dying. And I was like, you can't, you can't, you can't. <laughs> You can't do that. <laughs> I was like, yeah. Um, so yeah, it was it was it was profound. It was it was really really interesting. Uh, so we have time for like two or three more, and I just want to make sure that some of the young women in here get to ask questions. So if you are, please raise your hand so I can get to it. Uh, I do have a hand here. Let's go make it. Let's make it quick, and we'll go to some of the young ladies in here. Hi. Um, yeah, super quick. I am super curious in your opinion. Why do you, how and why do you think comics are uniquely um, adept at breaking down stereotypes? You know, that's a good question. Um, I think it partially has to do with the medium itself, because we don't have the same kind of mental barriers to images as we do to words. Um, an image enters our brain as the truth whether it portrays something true or not. And so I think when you have something like a comic book that is, has the intimacy of a book, in other words, it's not like a film where you can't control you know, the, the, the rate at which the film is going and you, you can leave in the middle, but you can't control the speed at which you view it. 
um, a comic book you can put down and pick up and it's yours and you put it in your bag. So it combines the immediacy of those images with the intimacy of words and books. And I think it just gets to a place in your brain that other media does not. Um, and, and that sort of makes it uniquely powerful. And then, of course, there's also the symbolism. People who've never seen a single Iron Man movie, although that's probably a small number of people right now, um, or, you know, read a Superman comic, know the Superman logo, um, or the Batman logo, or what have you. So it, it really becomes part of that unconscious symbolism that makes up our modern secular mythology as well. And that, I think, also makes it kind of a uniquely potent thing. Thank you so much for being here. And this has just been so exciting for me to attend. I, uh, I have to confess, I was somewhat of a skeptic when news about Ms. Marvel was coming out. And after I read it, I was just so excited. Uh, not, not necessarily because of all the hype that was going around about who Kamala was, but just the, the quality of the story, the authenticity of the character, and, and the people that she surrounded herself with, because I do think that's a huge reflection of the person themselves, you know, those they mm -hmm. choose to, to associate with. My question is, are there any skeptics who came back and said, my mind is blown, I, I can't believe I doubted this, um, have there been any people who were skeptical thinking, what are you doing? And then they come back and say, wow, I'm, I was horribly wrong. Um, yeah, there were some. And, uh, you know, one of them was a writer for like Elle or something. <laughs> like I did, there was, there was a lot of very understandable nervousness in the American Muslim community when the book was announced because the only thing that we'd had before then was you know, the, like the model minority stuff or the terrorism adjacent stuff. And they were like, it's gonna be one of the two because, you know, this is a giant media corporation. That's what they do. There is no nuance in here. And, um, you know, in, in their position, I would have had that same skepticism. Uh, and, uh, you know, so it was totally, totally understandable and I was in no way offended by it at all. Um, but I remember having a conversation with this reporter for, I don't remember if it was Elle or something else, but it was, it was Elle or Glamour or one of those. And, uh, you know, she was uh, Muslim. I think she was maybe, she was not Pakistani. Um, she was maybe Turkish, but she had those concerns. She was like, you know, okay, what about, you know, her friend in hijab and her, and her mother and all of this stuff, all of she'd had to go on were the images that had been out in the New York Times at that point, like the promo art. And uh, so she asked me those questions. She was like, okay, you know, when's, where's the terrorism angle? And I was like, no, there's not gonna be a terrorism angle. Um, and this brother, you know, like he's sort of, you know, you're, you're making him out to be super conservative. So what's going on with that? And I was like, well, I thought it was important to have a coded sort of Salafi, very conservative Muslim in there who was complex and who had ideas that we might not agree with, but who was like, a brother and there was love there and she was like oh 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 um, and by the end she was like by the end it was kind of a different article uh, from the one that I gather she had planned to write and uh, so that was that was really cool so there were and there you know there there sort of were and remain people within the Muslim community to whom 
this character was not the character they wanted to see. There are conservative Muslims who got really upset that she was not wearing hijab full time. Um, you know, she, we, we do show her in hijab when she's at the mosque or at certain, you know, cultural functions where it's appropriate. Um, but they said, we are, you know, we're going to boycott this book until she puts something on her head. So those guys are still there. But I have to say, even they, like I have a, I have a friend uh, who's a fairly prominent blogger in the Muslim community called the Salafi Feminist, and she wears niqab and has a lot of very conservative uh, followers. And so she was posting something about Ms. Marvel on her Facebook page. And one of these guys, very conservative, was like, you know what? Oh, you know what it was? It was, it was the speech that uh, Amir, her brother, gives about radicalization a couple of, uh, a couple of issues back. And this, uh, this guy, this, this blog follower of hers says, you know what? I boycotted Ms. Marvel because she wasn't wearing hijab, but I would read a whole series about this guy. <laughs> I was like, yes. Um, you know, you can't be everything to everybody, but you can try to have something for pretty much everybody uh, at some point or other. And, and I think that's, that's sort of what we tried to do with, by having that wide range of opinions and beliefs and characteristics and personalities you know, of the Muslim community in the book. So we have time for two more questions, one here. Hi, my name is Kit. Uh, you made a reference to the invisible battlefield and the last time Earth had a Nazi problem, Marvel fought them off. <laughs> Are you guys going to fight the Nazis again? I don't know, man. Uh, I'm not on that email list. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. You know, it's, it's interesting. I think in World War II, we were sort of united as a country, more or less, sometimes more, sometimes less, in agreement about what the threat was. Now, I think the threat has become much more nebulous because it's internal. You know, the Nazis are not over there in Europe. They're here. Here, perhaps even in this very room. No. Well, maybe, but, you know. Um, so I, I think it's become a lot more fraught for people uh, because now we're having to reevaluate, were we those things that we thought we were? Were we as brave and as free and as wonderful and as just and everything? Or were we maybe something else? And those questions are really scary to people. And, you know, it's, it's, I think there's, there's a lot more drive to kind of stay in denial or to write off the problem as something else. And, uh, and, and that makes it more difficult to kind of unify around one goal. And even when you do unify around the goal, okay, Nazis are bad. Uh, there can be deep internal divisions about how best to portray that in fiction and what is and what isn't the right way and the right characters and the right time. And I have to say, I'm not talking about anybody in particular or any story in particular, but in fiction and especially in pop culture, a story that is on time is about 10 minutes too late. Um, you, you know, when you're describing carnage and division and hatred that is very real and happening right now and being like, look, there's carnage and division and hatred that's happening right now, that does not come off as profound. It comes off as, I don't even, I'm, I'm searching for a word, insufficient, uh, if not demoralizing, and perhaps even insulting. 
because you're pointing at something that everybody else has already been pointing out for a while. So I think with stories about stuff like this, you really have to have the guts to get out ahead of it and point to it before it's there. Because once it's already there and you've read the wind and you see which way people are going to go and then you say, okay, this is what I'm going to do, it, it doesn't land. It doesn't land. Um, and I think some people are finding that out the hard way. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's what I'll say about that. So we live in the age where every comic book is becoming a movie. Would you like to see Kamala Khan be portrayed in a movie? And if so, is there a director that you would trust to portray her well? Oh, wow. A director I would trust. Um, <clears throat> I would love to see her on film. Uh, I would love even more to see her on TV, I have to say, or on Netflix or something like that, for the simple reason that it's, it's more suited to that kind of episodic serial storytelling, whereas in a movie you have to compress the whole thing into two hours and you lose a lot of the fun stuff. Um, in terms of directors, I don't know. I mean, you know, Lexi Alexander of The Punisher has been dying to make a Kamala Khan movie for years. Uh, she's awesome. She would do an amazing job. I do know that, let's see, I don't know. Well, this is funny. So Nicole Perlman, who wrote um, Guardians of the Galaxy, and I went to high school together. And we're good buddies. And uh, she, we were always the two finalists in like the little, you know, state writing competitions things that she always won, always. <laughs> she claims not to remember this. She's like, oh, really? I don't remember that. I was like, yeah, you don't remember because you won every single time. Um, and she, I think, isn't she working on the Captain Marvel movie? Am I? She is. Okay. I'm like, did I just totally, like, am I going to get in trouble as soon as I get off with this? Is that announced? Is that a thing? Um, so we've talked a lot about that. And I know that she is very excited about Kamala also. Um, but at this point, I do not know anything film or TV-wise that the internet does not also know. So I'm not hiding anything. I genuinely do not know. <laughs> but it would be very cool. Thank you so much to Jamala and Willow. This has been really amazing. Thank you. Thank you, Jamala. That's it for this extra from Speakers Forum. Willow Wilson spoke with KUOW's Jamala Henderson at the Langston Hughes Performing Arts Institute on October 23rd. Thanks to Jenny Cecil Moore for our recording, and thanks for listening. Tune in again soon.